It's great to be here and thank you for the invitation, the opportunity to be here and to, to be part of uh, what you do. I love that emphasis on a heart for the poor and a heart for the broken, a heart for the lost, because that's, that's the heart of Jesus. And I really appreciate just hearing some of the stuff that you're doing in various countries around the world. So that's a good thing. And thanks again to, and commend you for all the work you're doing in the Philippines. I, I just know that makes a difference. I was in the Philippines last year and, and that made a huge difference. I was due to be there last week but just wasn't able to go. Kate Smith, who's our new representative in Tasmania, is Kate here? Kate's up the back and she lives in, in, in Launceston. She was there last week. If you want to know any more about what's happening there, you talk with Kate at the, at the stand afterwards. That would be great um, to do. It's not a surprise to you that I come here this morning. I want to talk about God's heart for the poor. But before doing that, I, I'd like to expand it, if I could, to talk about God's scandalous heart for the poor. It's, it's a scandal that God just has got a heart so big and so ex- enormous and so great that um, He reaches out beyond ourselves. Sometimes we don't reach out beyond ourselves, but He does. But before I talk about God's scandalous heart for the poor, I want to talk about God's scandalous heart for you. Because unless you understand God's heart for you, then anything we do with the lost, the broken, and the poor in this world will be a good thing. It'll be, it'll be out of some great, maybe humanitarian desire, but it will lose something of the, the oomph and the depth and the power of God living in us. And working in us. So I want to talk about God's scandalous heart for you leading into God's um, scandalous heart for the poor. And I say scandal um, wisely, I hope. Let me def- define a scandal for you. You'll see it come up on the screen. A scandal, the Oxford Dictionary defines it as an action or event regarded as morally or legally wrong and causing general public outrage. You see, God has given us this thing called a scandal of grace. It's a, it's a scandal. You don't deserve it. It's, it's something that's so contrary to the moral code of our society. It's so contrary to the social conscience of our society, which basically says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which basically says you get what you deserve. And along comes God with this scandal because it's so contrary f- from that. And he says, no, I'm going I'm to talk to you and, and reach you with what you don't deserve. And it's outrageous. What God has done in our life is outrageous. Not just a nice thing that we believers go, very nice, that's great. What God has done is outrageous. It's a scandal. And I want to talk a little bit more about that um, this morning. This, this scandal of grace, which is more than a theological concept. It's got to be more than that. It's far deeper than that. It's something that God has done deep inside our hearts, inside our very being. And this scandal has many parts. There's a scandal of provision. So God has provided for us mightily. You know, in the Scriptures, the the, uh, letter to the epistle to the um, Ephesians is often called the epistle of grace. It's that letter that Paul wrote in the second chapter talks about, you know, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's Nothing you've done, nothing you can brag about or boast about. It's God who's done it. Um, you're his workmanship, etc. And he works through you, but he's done it all for you. And by grace and by faith, you grasp that. But before Paul even gets to that in, the, in his letter, in chapter 2, chapter 1, he spells out all the things that he has provided for you 
already. Let me read it to you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he's chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. One last little bit. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who were God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul spells out, even before he gets to that second chapter of Ephesians, he spells out the things that he has already provided for you. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what he's provided for you. If you're not there yet, you're exploring the journey. This is what you can look forward to. He says, firstly, he says, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's already spelled that out. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, you have everything you need to live the life Jesus wants you to live. You have it. And here's the question. If you have every spiritual blessing in Christ, what spiritual blessing do you not have? I see lots of people trying to get more and more for themselves in terms of God's spiritual blessing. And, 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 and Paul says you have it all. Discover it, live it, and then give it. That's how Paul talks about it. He says, secondly, you have been chosen before the creation of the world. In other words, from the beginning of time, and this is hard for us to comprehend, from the beginning of time, God has you in his mind. He's chosen you. He's selected you before the creation of the world. He knows you. He cares for you. He loves you. Even that. It says you've been redeemed through his blood. You've been, you've been bought back. In other words, we have lived our own lives. We've done our own thing. We've gone our own way. There's consequences of that. But there's another way that God has actually paid for that and has done this thing called redemption or redeemed or brought us back to him. We've been redeemed already as a follower of Jesus. He says he's shown us the mystery of his will. Sometimes we think the will of God is so difficult and so tough and sometimes it seems that way. But sometimes it's that way because we allow our lives and our minds and our hearts to get cluttered with all the things that are surrounding us. And he says he's given us the mystery of his will. And the reason why it is a mystery to us is because sometimes we just fill our lives with stuff. He says you have the mystery. You, you can know, in other places, you can know the mind of Christ. He goes on to say you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit lives in you as a deposit of what's to come. 
already before he even talks about by grace you've been saved, he says that is God's provision for you. That is what I've provided for you. That's a scandal. That's an outrage. You don't deserve any of that. I don't deserve any of that. God has given it to us. That's why it's a scandal. You want to know God's heart for you? That's it. That's the scandal of provision. But he takes that scandal further. It's a scandal, not just of provision, but a scandal of forgiveness. God has forgiven you extraordinarily. It's, it's, more, it's, it's another part of this great thing called grace. He has forgiven you. I want to be careful what I say, but we, we don't deserve forgiveness. But God has called us to be forgiven. He's chosen that we can forgive. This was brought home to me once in, a, in an amazing uh, church service I was at in. I was on the, in, in Rwanda with a team of people and I was on my way back to the airport. This is a photo of uh, the young man I was, I was with. It's one of the most amazing church services I've ever been in. It started off as kind of normal, as a normal church service does. I was there, it was just about the week before the 20th um, commemoration of the Rwandan genocide when almost a million people were killed in a, in a, in a hundred days. So in this church, so it was an Anglican church. I met the pastor, Pastor Francis was his name. And in Rwanda, you've got no idea what denominations are. They all sort of worship lively and the same. So it doesn't matter that much. Pastor Francis said, look, when it comes time in, this, in the service, would you be able, Tim, to read the scriptures and introduce your team to me? So I said, I would. So we started the service like we would have started the service this morning. We sang and we talked a little bit and, and then it came the announcements. He gave some announcements. He said, Tim, would you read the scriptures and etc." And I said, yes, I, I will do that. I, I read the scriptures and introduced my team and sat down and then something changed. He said, today we're going to pray for Christopher. This is Christopher. If you leave that photo up, there'll be, yes, that photo. This is Christopher. Christopher was a young guy who was doing the sound. He was over the side on a little four-channel mixer doing the sound for, uh, I think it was connected up to something. I'm not sure what it was connected up. It was working, but it was, it was a pretty dodgy connection. But it, it, was, it was there, and he got Christopher out the front. He said, today we're going to pray for Christopher and his wife, Christina, who wasn't there. Because this week, um, Christina has just discovered where the bodies of her parents have been put after they were thrown down a, a, a pit latrine in the Rwandan genocide. And that week, the man who'd done that had confessed 20 years on to where he had killed them and where he had thrown the bodies. And he said, this week on Thursday, we're going to go as a church with Christopher and Christina and we're going to dig up those bodies. We're going to give them a proper burial. He said, we're going to pray for Christopher. I'm sitting in the seat that, like that. I'm bawling my eyes out at that point of time. And then he says, will you, Tim, will you come up and help me pray? I said, sure, I'd love to. And, and, and I did love to, but I just couldn't speak. So we're praying for Christopher and Pastor Francis fortunately spoke and I just stood there with my hand on his shoulder and we prayed for him and as he and his wife were going to go this week and dig up the bones of her parents and give them a proper burial. And after they told me the backstory of this, and the backstory is this, so that Christopher, the husband, was a member of a Hutu tribe. His wife, Christina, was a member of the Tutsi tribe, and it was the Hutus in that particular time who were, you know, slaughtering to, to, uh, Tutsis. And 
And you see, his father had been in jail for 10 years for murder at that time and he'd confessed 10 years earlier and it was now 10 years on and he was still in jail. It wasn't the murder of her parents, but you see, they've already had to coming together in marriage to work through forgiveness. You've got to work through forgiveness like that before you even get to that stage. You have to work through the, 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 the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of one another very, very quickly in that circumstance. Forgiveness is a huge thing. You know, sometimes we talk about forgiveness as, as followers of Jesus very quickly, very, you know, fleetingly. And we wonder sometimes why, yeah, I should, the Bible says I should forgive, so I will forgive. And then we think the next time we see the person we said we've forgiven, we still have those feelings of angst and anger and maybe even hatred. Who knows? Forgiveness has got two parts to it. It's, we just think it's one part. I just decide to forgive. I make a decision in my mind to forgive, therefore I've forgiven. No, not that simple. Forgiveness is two parts. It's, it's you make a decision to forgive. But secondly, you relinquish the right to get even. And the, the choice to forgive is a very quick thing. You can do that quickly. But to relinquish the right to get even can take some time. You might wonder why you have forgiven someone and it's st you still have these lingering feelings for a while. It does take some time. That's exactly how God has forgiven you in Jesus. He made a choice to forgive you but he surrendered the right to get even. He has every right to get even with us, every right. We deserve it. That's why it's a scandal. It's a scandal of provision and it's a scandal of forgiveness, but that's not all. It's a scandal of life itself. You see, forgiveness will always deal with your past, but you need life for the future. You need life in all its vibrancy and in all its bigness. It's largesse. And God has given us life itself. God's, life, God's scandal is bigger than that. Let me read to you a couple of scriptures, if I can, from Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The real issue in, for humanity is not that we're guilty and need forgiveness. The real issue is that we're dead and we need life. It doesn't say you were guilty in your sin. He said you were dead. He's given us life. He reads you again from Romans chapter 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's made you fully alive. Colossians says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. So having forgiven you, he's now made you alive. It's important to have that life. I, I know some people who are followers of Jesus who will always cl claim, and rightly so, they've been forgiven, but you wouldn't know they had life. He's given us life. And then perhaps the, the most outrageous, the most outrageous scripture, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, this is an outrageous statement. This, this, is, this is a scandalous statement. Because God didn't just come to change your life. There are lots of things that will change your life. You get a very poor medical prognosis, it will change your life. You move home or move country or something like that, it'll change your life. No one here would do it, I know, but if you won the lottery, it will change your life. God just didn't come, Jesus didn't come in the flesh just to change your life. He came to exchange your life. It says, him who had, who was, who had no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. There's a, there's a change, there's an exchange that happens here. It's an extraordinary thing. It's, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's outrageous. It's a scandal. God has given you provision. He's given you forgiveness. And now he's given you life. Life to the full, the scriptures talk about. Now, Jesus didn't just cover your sin. This is kind of, we, we sometimes get this picture at Easter time where, you know, Jesus is on the cross and all of our sins are you know, sort of stacked up on his shoulders. No, he didn't cover your sin. It says he became your sin. You could spend weeks just thinking about that. He ex you're ex you're this magnificent exchange that God has given to us. It's the, it's the power in the cross of the cross and the resurrection. In the cross, he becomes your sin. In the resurrection, you become his life. It's an amazing, amazing exchange. So now we have the permanent presence of the living Christ living in us day by day. That's an extraordinary thing. That's a scandal. That's not what you deserve. But here's the question. If that is true, and it is, if God has given you this extraordinary thing called grace, his provision, his forgiveness and his life, if God has given you that, then the question you have to ask this, it's the question the old philosopher Francis Schaeffer asked when he said, how then should we live? In other words, if God has given us that, if that's God's heart for you, how then do we live? Do we sit back and, and go, well, that's fantastic. You know, God has given me, God give me more. That's fantastic. I just want more of you. And he's given us all there is. Do we do that or do we just sit back and, relax in this wonderful thing called grace that God has given us? Or do we make a difference in the world? Do we impact the world in which we live? And I just want to simply share a couple of scriptures with you, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, which emphasize this whole thing of how then we're to live. How then do we live? You know, in the Old Testament, there's this incredible um, journey that the people of God go on. It's like a roller coaster journey. They, they walk close to God and then they fall away. They get a bad king or just some bad advice or something and they go down a you know, rabbit hole of away from God and then a prophet comes along and leads them back again and they go through the same process one more time and one more time and one more time. And God, you know, there's all this sort of system of, you know, feasts and sacrifices and offerings, etc., to get them back on track and, to, and they go off again. 
And one of those times was with a prophet called Micah where the people of God had gone so far off the track and, and they sort of something goes on and they go, well, how do we get back? And they ask the question of, of Micah, how on earth do we get back to God again? And they ask some incredible questions. You know, what, what, it, what, is, what does God want for us to get back? Does he want, you know, whole, whole rivers of oil for us as a sacrifice? Does he want, you know, the best sheep from our, um, cro- from our flock? What does he want? What will I come? What wealth shall I come before the Lord? And shall I come with burnt offerings and calves, or even do I for my firstborn? I mean, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing that people are asking. And then Micah says, "No, he says, he's shown you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly, justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. How then should we live? To do justly." to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Just be reminded. It's not, some, it's not some rocket science. You want to know how to live? That's how you do it. You, you, know, you do that. You, you walk with justice. There are two words in that scripture that, that kind of stand out. The one is the word chesed, which is a Hebrew word meaning unconditional grace and compassion. And the other word is mishpah, which means justice. And it's not like it's, it's a threefold trick. It's not like, you know, you, you love justice and you walk, you walk with justice, you love mercy and you walk humbly with God. No, it's all one. It's basically this. To walk humbly with God, you do justice out of merciful grace and love. That's what it means. You do justice out of merciful grace and love. And, and the, the projects you're doing, whether it be in the Philippines or in India or wherever, they are issues of justice. They're not issues of charity. They're issues of justice. Things that shouldn't be. Things that are not good. Things that are not right. God says to these people, you want to you live, you want to live, you, know, you want to know how to get back to God? Well, you do good. You do justice. You do it out of mercy. And you walk humbly with God. That's how we live. That's how we do it. You know, in the Old Testament, there were groups of people who, every time it talks about justice and and mercy, most of the time it talks about these groups of people. The Bible calls them, or the theologians call them, the, the quartet of the vulnerable. They are the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. When you read the scriptures, you find them coming through all the time. For example, just one example, in Zechariah it says, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plant evil against each other, but they refuse to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their, their ears. You know, these were the group of people in society where there was, no, there was no net. There was no net to help them. It was only the people of God who could help them. The widows, the orphans, the vulnerable and the poor. The foreigner and the poor. And uh, that's how actually God is introduced in the Old Testament. When you read God, he's often called the father to the fatherless, the defender of the widow. It's, it's not just a title, it's what he does. You know, as you can introduce, as I do and, and, and did this morning, as, as Tim Hanna's the CEO of Compassion Australia, that's because what I do, that's because what I do in the public space. That's the role I carry out in the public space. It's not just a title. When God is called the father to the fatherless and the defender of the widows, it's because that's what he does in the public space. It's not just a title. It's what he does. He's called that. 
You want to know what to do? We walk humbly with God by loving justice and doing it with mercy, with outstanding love. Let me share with you one more scripture. It's from the New Testament. You know this very well, but let me set it up for you. How many people here are part of a small group of some sort? Small group of some sort. Okay. I want you to imagine that you're in your small group. I don't know whether it's Wednesday night or Sunday afternoon or Thursday morning, wherever it might be, but you're in your small group and all of a sudden Jesus walks in. He just walks from the back and comes forward and, and sits down and in your small group and wants to read the scriptures because one day he did. One day he walked into a small group in his hometown and he wanted to read the scriptures. It's probably a bigger small group than you're in. It's a, what's called a synagogue and synagogues were set up when the people of God were thrown into exile. They, were, they wanted a, a way to still remember who God was, to still tell the stories of faith, to still sing the songs of faith, to pray together. So they wouldn't lose, they, didn't attend, they weren't near the temple, so they couldn't use that as kind of their, their central point. They set up these things called synagogues, usually about 10 Jewish families, roughly, who met together. And when they came back into, the, into the Israel again, they still kept these synagogues going, even though they were back, a new temple, etc. It's a big, small group, but maybe a bit like yours. One day he walked into that small group, and... Uh, he just said, oh, you know, he wanted to read the scriptures. Now, his scriptures were a scroll. It was a scroll of Isaiah. If Jesus walked into my small group, I'd be, and asked to read our, my Bible, we'd be running, all, jumping all over each other. Getting, you read from mine, read from mine, read from mine. We, we'd be doing that. But he comes in and someone hands him a scroll. No one gave him any instructions where to read from, where he should read from. He could have read from anywhere. Could have read from anywhere. He could have, Read from that scroll, what we know as Isaiah uh, 11. Uh, he wouldn't have known as I, there's no numbers on it. He could have read, you know, that bit that, you know, from the root of Jesse comes someone who will have the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of power. And he could have beat his chest and, you know, guys, that's me. I would have done that. Be pretty neat. He could have read from what we know as Isaiah 43 and, and, and again, he didn't know that, what, what it was called, but he could have written there and said, you know, that bit where it says, God's care for you, you know, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, child, you are mine. When you walk through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire and the flames, I'll be with you. And he could have said, folks, that's me, that's the kind of care I'm going to have for you for your life. Look at me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He could have gone to that same chapter, actually, that we know it is the same chapter. He could have, you know, given the great vision speech. You know, we love a good vision. We have church visions, and that's great. But this is, he could have gone, you know, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up amongst you. Do you not perceive it? He could have gone, guys, let's link arms together and take the hill. We can do this. He doesn't do that either. He simply goes to what we know as... Isaiah 61 today, and he just reads what we know as two small scriptures. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and recovery of sight from the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the acceptable year of the Lord. He reads those two little bits of scripture, and he rolls it up again and gives it back 
And if Jesus had come into my small group and only read two, two, two verses of the Bible, I'd be disappointed. But he sits down and it's almost as if he can see people there who are disappointed, sort of shuffling in their seats and nudging each other with their elbows. So he stands up and he says this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, that's what I'm about. I'm about bringing good news to the poor. I'm about bringing recovery of sight for the blind. I'm about bringing freedom for the oppressed. I'm about bringing those that are unacceptable to be acceptable. That's what I'm about. And by implication, if you're going to follow me, that better be what you're about as well. That better be what you're about. It's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary statement, really, to just summarise your whole ministry in your hometown, close it up and say, that's it, folks. You want to, you want to be a follower of me? Do the same thing. That's a scandal. We'd love him to say a whole bunch of other stuff. Let me just finish with one last thought. And I hope this disturbs you because it disturbs me greatly. As Christians, we avoid scandal. We should avoid scandal. We don't mind reading about it, but we don't want to get involved in it. This is one scandal you have to get involved in. The scandal of God's grace, what God has done in your life. To reflect on that, to be to, to, with unbelievable gratitude to give to God, to be thankful, and then to respond in that way, which is to bring it out to other people, to give it to other people. People around this neighborhood, people around this city, people around this country, people on the other side of the world. You know, my, you don't expect, you don't, you're not surprised at me talking about people on the other side of the world, the difference you have made, continue to make in the Philippines and the project you're in. Just think of what it means for those young people and their families. It's an extraordinary gift, extraordinary thing, which is an extension of God's scandalous grace for you. Extension of that. You can continue to make that difference. As Craig said earlier, you know, the, there are photos of young people out on the table out there and uh, they are just typical of the people who are living in those places. I've grabbed one on the way in, a little girl called Althea. She was born in, she's four years of age in the Philippines. You've got some projects and we're, we're searching, searching for some more kids available in, that, in those projects if you want to, do that, just let them know out at the, at, the, at the table. There's another project that's a bit wider from that as well, but just so you can visit, we can all, we can all go together. That's a, that's a great thing to do. You can make the difference in the life of a young person and their family that is for now and is for eternity. It makes such, such a difference. I want to encourage you to run them off their feet out there. That'd be great just to uh, see the difference that you can make in the life of a child and his or her family and his or her community. And you know, enough of those in the nation. Enough to happen. God's scandalous grace for you. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the scandal of grace that is ours, Lord, your extraordinary provision. You have provided so mightily for us 
You've given us every spiritual blessing there is in Christ. Father, I thank you for the scandal of forgiveness, Lord. You have not held against us those things that ought to be held against us, that our culture says should be held against us. You have given us forgiveness and freedom, and as well as that, you've given us the scandal of life itself. We have a vibrancy and a life which comes directly from you. You've given us this exchange with Jesus. And God, you won't let us settle just to bask in that. You call us to make a difference in the world in which we live. And Father, the most vulnerable people on this planet are children living in poverty. And I thank you already, Lord God, for the difference this church has made. Father, would you continue to make that difference? Would you speak to each of our hearts? Would you cause us to bring hope, to bring life to others? Not just for now, but for eternity. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.